Blog Talk Radio. Stephen James here, and welcome to the Story Blender, the place where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. And today I'm excited because our guest comes to us from Hollywood. He's one of the A-list screenwriters there, and Mark Bombeck is best known for his movies like Live Free or Die Hard, Total Recall, Insurgent, The Wolverine, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and the forthcoming War for the Planet of the Apes. He's a prolific writer and experienced producer and expert at crafting stories that audiences flock to, and he's here with me today. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, I come to this from the perspective of a novelist, and I write thrillers and action, mystery and intrigue and suspense novels, and, and you write mainly, although I think you've uh, you maybe dabbled with using source material from novels, but mainly screen screenplays, and from what I understand, the process is quite a bit different. I'm solo, sitting in my basement, shaping something, and I understand it's a little bit more of a collaborative process, putting together a screenplay. Is that... Would you say that's true, or how, how do you? I would, how I would you, say not only yeah. is that true, but that's sort of, to my mind, one of the most fundamental differences. You know, yeah. oftentimes I'll advise younger writers, um, and when they're frustrated, I'll remind them that you know, if you really wanted to be the only arbiter of what is in and out of the story, you really are picking the wrong medium. You know, um, there's a great quote by Paul Schrader who wrote. Taxi Driver and um, a number of Scorsese films, and uh, he says, you know, screenplays aren't art. They're an invitation to collaborate on a work of art. Interesting. I like it. I I sort of think of what I do as somewhere between what you do, but also what like an architect does, where I'm I'm really drawing up a blueprint, right? I'm drawing up a set of instructions on how to make a film. And my only tools really are action and dialogue. Um, and that's once I'm done, then my job is to then collaborate with the director, actors, editors, cinematographers. Everybody comes in and says, well, here's what I'm going to bring to it. And that will impact the, the blueprint, you know? Yeah. And so um, it's a very different way of telling a story. It can be a little jolting. Uh, for people who haven't done it before because you have to cede a certain amount of creative control. And if you're with someone who you're not feeling, uh, you know, a, a strong collaboration with, then you can you can start to go backwards in your storytelling. But if you're with someone who you trust and uh, and really has a different set of skills, not only, you know, artistic skills, but even just life experiences, um, you get at least in my experience, you get a much richer story sometimes. You get um, insights into what it is that you're saying that you wouldn't even have arrived at, you know. So, um, it's but it's not for everyone, and there are certainly times when I wish I had a little bit more um, say over what the final story will be. But more often than not, I wind up being really grateful to be in these collaborations. Yeah, now I wonder if there are certain hills that you're like, that you're like, I'm going to die on this hill, like I'm going to fight for this idea all the way through, or, or I, like I would have a hard time not doing that personally. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are there are moments. It's it's not that you're going to fight on this hill and 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 
and potentially sabotage the whole project just right, to make right. sure this line of dialogue survives. But there are times when I, I'll often use this expression, and by the way, directors use this expression a lot as well, where you need to sort of, well, at least if you're talking about the studio, for example, the studio might come in and they have a, a, a reason for wanting a certain note taken or a certain thing excised from the script. And yeah. oftentimes you say, it's my job to save them from themselves, right? Like I know that the note is not coming from a place of malice. It's really coming right. from like, it's going to be easier to market the movie if we do X, Y, and Z, or it's going to be reaching a larger audience if we take out this idea. And my job is to sometimes say, the movie's going to be better in the long run if you keep this, or if you alter in a way that both satisfies you but also satisfies me. And um, that is my job. But I've learned the hard way that oftentimes those things you think are indispensable and that the whole movie will crumble if this idea is removed turn out to be quite dispensable. <laughs> so um, you look back on it in time and you say, I can't believe I was so hung up on this one thing, making it into the film. And um, I, most of my films that I've worked on, the things that I like the best are the things that I didn't really pay much attention to while working on. You know, the little moments will yeah. suddenly burst out and you say, oh, that's actually more fun than I had even anticipated. So, Now, I think in every movie, um, there are maybe a few real poignant moments where um, I'm guessing that a lot of viewers really identify. I know it tends to be that way with the novels that I write. Like, if I hear from people, it'll be the same moments in the story that most people seem to really identify emotionally resonant moments. Do you, do you find that to be the case with the movies that you've written or the television series that you've done, where there tend to be these really uh, powerful moments? And, and if so, how do you tap into those when you write? Gosh, well, I don't think it's something that you can premeditate. I've been lucky right. enough that there have been things that I've worked on that have really resonated with people. For some reason, when you ask that question, a film I worked on that, that comes to mind is this movie called Unstoppable uh, that starred Denzel Washington and Chris Pine, and it was very, very loosely based on um, a true event where these two, um, an engineer and a conductor, had to stop a runaway train. And... Um, and it was it was an opportunity to sort of write an action thriller that also was examining a bit of what it's like to be disenfranchised in America today, and what it's like to work in the Rust Belt, and and um, and to feel like um, you're you're the sort of last of a dying breed of worker. And I I got a lot of email and um, response from people who didn't necessarily work in the railroad industry, but worked in similar industries. And it somehow spoke to them, this this idea that these two ordinary guys accomplished something great. And I think it helped that it was based on, again, loosely based, but based on a, a true event. And, um, in fact, the, the people who uh, whose lives I, I, I based it on probably had the strongest emotional response to it, not because there was anything in there that was directly true to their lives, but I think the spirit of, of what the characters did in the story sort of made them reflect on what they had done in a way that, you know, yeah. um, they might not have otherwise. So um, those are the most gratifying things ever when you're writing. But I think, at least for me, uh, it might be the limits of my abilities. But if I try to get those poignant moments, um, I almost inevitably 
it, it, it winds up either requiring lots of revision because they feel saccharine or, or sort of right. isolated. Um, and the ones that come out naturally, the ones that I am simply just trying to be true to the story and be true to the characters, and then suddenly this moment happens where the, the story the story's wants and the characters wants link up in this very organic way and it just feels true to life and people I think tend to get most moved by things that feel, you know, true. Um, yeah, I like it. And you mentioned sort of this organic um I, I I really took away from what you just said is this idea of really listening to the story and I love how you said being true to the story and true to the characters. Um I I write organically and I know that in Hollywood a lot of, a lot of teaching is done on three act structure. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm wondering how how do you, does that inform your writing the act sort of structure or do you have another format? It sounds like you write a little bit more organically kind of like I do. Um but I'm sure that that you know people will have that language well what happens at the end of act 1 or yeah you know, you know like it's, that. It's 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 such a great question because I know when I started writing, I thought I didn't need to really... I, I understood this with the X structure in a very um, sort of academic way, but didn't really think it was necessary for me to, to write well. And probably by accident, I was writing more or less in the three-act structure, but certainly wasn't trying to check off boxes in any way. And then about, <clears throat> about 12 years ago or so, I moved from L.A. back to New York, where I'm from, and uh, a professor of mine asked if I would teach a screenwriting class, even though I was far too inexperienced to really teach one, but nevertheless, she asked and I wanted to. So I taught this class, and so for the first time, I had to actually explain the 3 X structure to students. And in doing so, I had to do a bit more research on my own to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And, um, and as I did, I realized that I was quite lucky that I – had gotten as far as I had without thinking about the three-act structure that carefully. Now it's something, and, and so my students, they were all college students, and they thought they were above the three-act structure as well. And um, and the way I sort of explained it was I, I, I showed Annie Hall and The Silence of the Lambs, uh, first act of both those films, to my students, which, you know, you probably have a difficult time finding two films that are more dissimilar. Um, <laughs> but I showed them the first acts, and I said, I know on the surface these seem to have nothing in common. And, in fact, it would be hard, especially with Annie Hall, to explain why it's the first act. But, in fact, when you look at these two films, they follow the first act structure. You know, the, the first act rules for a three-act structure almost identically. And what I realized is, like, you can look at almost any great film, in, in fact, the most experimental films, right? Godard or Fellini, or they all ultimately, if they're not conforming to the three-act structure, they're commenting on the three-act structure or making you feel, why does the rhythm of this movie feel unique? Oh, because it's actually in some ways disobeying the three-act structure, and then here it's going to fall back into it. Mm. Um, like I showed my students Marathon Man. The first act of Marathon Man is like almost 45 minutes long. Most three-act structures... Uh, would have the first act end around 30 minutes. So my students said, there's something weird about the beginning of the movie. It feels like it's taking too long to get started. And I said, well, that was sort of the point. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you're, you're aware of it. So I find that the three-act structure is uh, incredibly useful, first off, as a way of just discussing story with your people you're collaborating with. We all know what we mean by the first act break. You know, what's that inciting incident that's going to push us into the rest of the story? And then we also understand what we mean by the second act break. Like, it's if, it's, if it's going to be a happy ending, that second act break is going to be the lowest point for 
our protagonist. And if it's going to be a tragic ending, that second act break is going to be the point where the protagonist feels like everything's going to work out, and then we're excited to see how it un- how it doesn't. So yeah, how it that, that sort of real sh- that shorthand is very valuable when you're talking about a story with people. So we just say, you know, end of the second act. We all just know what that means. It might not fall on the same page for every script, and it might, and it's certainly going to have vastly different definitions depending on what genre you're working on and what the story is but just to know that structure and again i think you'd be hard pressed to find a film where you couldn't um at least explain its relationship to the three-act structure um you know it's it's uh, that the old saying is the three-act structure is you take your hero and the first act you put him up in a tree second act you throw rocks at him and the third act he figures out a way to get down and (laughs) that's sort of like that's how all movies work you know um, so it's a very useful thing, but again, there's been such a um, an industry built on cracking how screenplays are structured, and I think there's a bit of a myth that if you can just unlock that three-act structure and follow these signposts, um, you'll write a successful screenplay, and I'm sure you know this from writing novels, there's no such thing as a formula, but they're, they're again, like some novels have chapters that are three pages long, some novels have no chapters at all, and whatever is the best fit, but they all would acknowledge the existence of chapters in the world of writing novels, you know? And so if someone decides to have no chapters, that's a decision, and it's related to the decision that other people have made to put chapters in, you know? So it's something that it's a bit, this is the wrong word, but nothing else comes to mind. It's almost irresponsible to ignore the three-act structure if you're writing a screenplay because you're doing your own story a bit of a disservice by not at least considering its three-act structure. You know, very long-winded yeah, answer and, to your question. Yeah, no, that was that yeah, was good. You know, um, it's interesting. People who are listening are probably like, Steve, what do you think of that? Because I actually wrote a book on writing called Story Trump's Structure, and interesting. The, yeah, the idea is not that you ignore everything that's been written about five acts or three acts or, or one act, two act plays, whatever it is, but that the story matters more that if you have to break the rules in the service of the story, do it. Um, or whatever quote those rules might be, but, but be aware of what the expectations of your audience are, whether that's readers or viewers. And, and um, like I like what you said earlier about you had to be true to the story, true to the characters. That's really what my, I'm getting at. I think it's, that I couldn't yeah. agree more because I feel like the most exciting books I read are the ones that are breaking rules. And I think, look, it's like, the, the, you know, the sort of cliche thing to say is I don't get Jackson Pollock with just splattered paint on a canvas, right? Right. But, like, it doesn't make sense unless you know that there is much, there's a much more formal way to paint and there's this specific decision being made by the artist that, in this case, I'm going to break all those rules. And the breaking of those rules is part of the experience of appreciating the art, you know. And yeah. I think with um, with novels and screenplays, again, like I, when you look at Pulp Fiction, right, when Pulp Fiction came out, it yeah. was so exciting to people who hadn't really even seen that many, quote-unquote, art house films um, because suddenly they were – like, wait, what is this crazy structure? It doesn't feel like any movie I've ever seen. It's obeying what that story wanted to do. You know, that story right. wanted to pop yeah. all over the place. You know, I think the trick is that there is a temptation, and I know I fall prey to it all the time. Sometimes there's a t- temptation to to do wheelies 
when you're really just supposed to ride the bike down the road, you know? And I, think, <laughs> I like that. That's good, yeah. Uh, and I think yeah. that sh- yeah. showing off how, how much you can break a structure is sometimes a recipe for just having something that's incoherent. And, and the worst crime, not engaging, you know, that you just yeah. don't care. So Now, I, when you mentioned Unstoppable earlier, I, I really enjoyed that movie. And I think I've seen almost all of your movies, at least. I haven't seen the TV series that you worked with. Um, but one of the things that I really, really love about the movies is the action and um, sort of the building up to these amazing climaxes. Um, now, when you when you write, do you have the end that climax in mind as you begin your process, or does that grow more organically out of your analysis of the characters and what they would do in these, you know, stressful situations, being up in the tree and having those rocks thrown at them? Well, I've tried it both ways, and I find that I sleep better at night sort of having a sense of where it's going to end. Yeah. Um, and usually that where it's going to end because of the nature of writing in this genre you know, requires thinking about some big set piece that's going to be a part of that ending. So like I knew, uh, for example, on the, on the new film, War, the, War for the Planet of the Apes, um, that action in the end um, has obviously morphed over the course of working on the story, but the basic idea of the ending was something that the director and I had in mind um, before we ever sat down to actually, you know, write a page of the script. Just because, not that you're writing toward it, but if you know that's where you want to land, um, it's just helpful in the back of your mind to also think about when you're working on certain pieces of action, how is that action going to have a relationship to the action at the end? Yeah. You don't want things to be sort of stepping on things and in the end, you're doing, you know, in a sense, it's that's your, you know, if you're writing a musical, that's your big musical number, you know. So you're, you're, you, you're doing things uh, multiple, you know, you're, you're you're multitasking, right? So you're you're thinking about the story and the characters, and uh, and really most important, how the characters are in driving the story. Um, but at the same time, you're also thinking about the choreography of this, of, of certain moments in the movie. Again, because it's a genre, it's action or thrillers. I'm sure if you were working on a comedy, which I don't, um, you'd have a couple of great comedy ideas that are in some ways not really um, part of the plot, you could say, or like that they, you know, the, the fun of them is simply how ingenious a comedic idea this is. Right. But right. in a perfect world, which, you know, usually the most successful comedies are doing this that all the elements of that set piece are actually totally informed by character and story. And that's how the things evolve, right? So like, go back to War for the Planet of the Apes, there are things about the ending that we just knew we want some kind of spectacle here, here are the ideas we have. By the time we're sitting down to execute, all of those moments are actually being informed by all the storytelling that has happened up to that point. And that's really a large part of how things change in the ending. And, you know, Sometimes an idea that you thought was sort of critical to the action of the ending ultimately doesn't make sense because the characters have evolved if you, as you told the story. But more often than not, there's just some fundamental ideas to that climax that you've worked out ahead of time that feel at least you know, true to who the characters were that you conceived. 
I recently read an interview uh, with Matt Reeves, uh, the, who's the director mm-hmm. of War for the Planet of the Apes, and he, he said the movie uh, becomes a revenge mission for Caesar. He said the movie goes from being this grand war movie to an almost Josie Wales-like western, yep. which I thought was very interesting. Now, when you were writing it, did you have anything in mind regarding a western, or is that just how the shape of the story sort of developed? We did a bit. I mean, Matt and I always pinch ourselves. It's really the only, the only. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call it apes movies. I guess the only franchise, right, where you're able to write um, a a war movie or a western, um, which nowadays the, the budget on that kind of thing would get capped pretty quickly. But because we have apes in them, we get to make these like massive <laughs> western class <laughs> war movies. Um, which that genre itself has, you know, fallen a bit out of fashion. So, um, yes, is the short answer. We um, we had this great opportunity after after Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was released, um, where we needed to come up with a story for the new one, and we did this thing that people assume screenwriters probably do more than we actually do, um, but in this case, we we did it. We asked the studio to give us a screening room and just ordered up a bunch of films to watch that we thought would be inspirational to come in oh, with the story. Huh. Yeah, and so we watched Josie Wells was a good example and The Searchers, um, but we also watched Spartacus and Braveheart and The Great Escape and The Bridge on the River Kwai and all, really uh, Ten Commandments, anything that we thought could maybe be helpful in thinking up. We had a very, 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 very vague idea of what we thought we might want to happen, but really nothing filled in. And so we'd watch these films, and after we'd watch them, we'd watch Ben-Hur, and then we'd go back to our office and start spitballing. What, what from that film sort of struck a chord? And um, inevitably, almost every film we took, even El Cid, like every film we saw, there was something in there that we said, oh, this element would sort of, you know, you, only Matt and I could probably trace the lines back. Um, right. Although there's a few things that, most people will be astute enough to easily trace the line back. Um, but, yeah, so it, Josie Wales in particular and, um, and the searchers, uh, certain Westerns um, informed a lot of the way we approached the story. You know, the, the idea really is in terms of this revenge thing is that um, Caesar has been able to maintain his moral compass uh, in the first two films, even though he's been horribly treated. And um, this is a film where we wanted to see how far we could push the darkness within Caesar himself. You know, in the last film, I don't know how well you know the last film, but his nemesis is this character, Koba, who is in some ways uh, quite a sympathetic villain in that he has been horribly abused by humans. And so his 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 bloodthirsty quest for revenge um, is to a certain extent justified because they started it and they've been, they they really robbed him of a lot. And so he's looking to make them suffer. And Caesar winds up actually, you know, taking out Koba in the service of saving not only humans, but more important, his own, his own people, his apes. In this film, we said, well, what would happen, what would have to happen in, in the course of the last two years or whatever in the story, in the story now that we're entering um, to, to force Caesar to realize that he's not so different from Koba actually, and that we all have in us a capacity for darkness that if pushed 
to a certain place um, we might fall prey to. And and really, uh, the final victory for Caesar is how does he uh, vanquish that part of himself, um, or does he? You know. So yeah. um, so that was to us like uh, the most ethical character we've had in the story, and the one who stays so true to himself. Um, he himself is put to a test. The war in the title is supposed to, in some ways, reference the war within Caesar um, and the, the war that he has to find a way to, to win or not. Now, yeah, and, and it's interesting. Some people say that I've heard different discussion, like who's the protagonist and who's the antagonist mm-hmm. in one of these films? Like in war, what would you say is, would you call Caesar the antagonist and the protagonist, or how does that work in your mind as you're shaping these stories? You know, this is going to be a bit of a wonky answer. I always think protagonist is literally mean like the person who, you know, the pro part of it, the person who creates the circumstances of the agony, right? The person who's creating the story. And so in this case, Caesar is always the protagonist because these stories are so centered on his journey. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, it's... You know, like that thing you learn in like sixth grade, there's like different kinds of stories, man versus nature, man versus man. This is like the man versus himself, even though it's actually ape versus himself. Uh, But he also has an external antagonist in the part of um, this character that Woody Harrelson plays. uh, uh, But in a sense, that character is in some ways equally, if not more sympathetic um, than Kobo was uh, in that he himself is sort of enduring things and making sacrifices not dissimilar to the one Caesar has made. And so, um, so yeah, hopefully it's a fitting I, yeah. antagonist, but yes, yeah. Caesar's the protagonist. Yeah. I, um, I think, I think when I teach on writing, uh, and story, I'll often say protagonist and people will argue and it's like, who are you cheering for the most? And that's probably your antagonist. <laughs> that's a very good way to think of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, and you know, if you're cheering against someone, then he's probably part of the forces of antagonism that's you know stopping the protagonist and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but uh, no, I mean, those are those are I think important questions as we you know shape stories. And now I know that at this point in your career, you know, studios will come to you and you'll or maybe you'll pitch ideas, but but they're coming to you maybe with projects and so on. Well, do you have any advice for aspiring um, writers, aspiring screenwriters, that um, maybe how can they break in or, or are there storytelling kind of, I don't know, about secrets that they're probably not doing that they should be doing? Gosh, you know, it's, it's a hard question to answer only because the business has changed so much since the time when I broke in. When I broke in, they were buying a lot of spec scripts. You know, by spec scripts, I mean scripts that were written on speculation by you in the hopes that somebody would buy them. So, right. You know, so these original stories. So uh, the script I sold first, which was back in like 96, I think, um, it never got made. They didn't pay an arm and a leg for it, but it was a way of getting in the door, and then I used that as an opportunity to get some rewriting work on other films. Some of those films got made, some of them didn't, and then kept on writing, wrote, wrote other spec scripts that I tried to sell. Some sold, some didn't. Now, um, as you rightly point out, like a, a lot of the business is driven by these, what they call IPs, right? So intellectual property, 
the simple way of saying a movie franchise, something that can have sequels and and also has built-in awareness. So, like, um, that's why you'll see a movie like Transformers come out come out of the nowhere because there are these toys that kids will buy, and it's easier to understand um, how you're going to sell that. Uh, and so, it's it's a way of minimizing risk for the studios, and it's understandable. But it also, of course, is a bit um, depressing because they wind up making much much more money on these films and to therefore dedicate much less money to original screenplays. So the, the old answer used to be, well, write a great original screenplay right. and then someone will buy it and you're off to the races. The, the answer is still write a great original screenplay and someone <laughs> will, will hire you, but they might not buy that original screenplay. What exists now, which didn't exist then, is this thing called the blacklist, which is like the best unproduced screenplays. And a lot of those haven't been bought, you know, um, but there's a way... There's, a, there's an online community now where people are made aware of these scripts. So that's one way is to, to start writing an original script and hope that in some way it catches fire. Uh, it might not get bought, but it's a way of someone knowing who you are. Right. And then it's up to you whether or not you want to go in and pitch on Transformers 8, you know. Um, but you might not. You might say, well, those aren't really the kind of films I like to watch. And then my advice would be, well, isolate the kind of films you do go to watch. And I know for me, like if I was starting out right now, the films I like the best are some of these smaller, strange, dark, um, almost horror films like The Witch or It Follows or or um, Jeremy Solnay's movie Green Room. Or There's these very small, interesting movies that wind up getting a slight theatrical release and then get a much wider audience online and Netflix and um I would probably, if I was starting out now, try to write something that size because I know it's the genre I'm responding to and try to figure out a way to make it um, and have that be the calling card itself, which is daunting, but not as daunting as you might think given the fact that there are lots of people looking to invest in films and sometimes films don't really need to cost very much if you're being smart about it. Um, The other thing is... um, is is to go the route of, of TV, which has more and more opportunities. Um, and and again, like that seems to work in a similar fashion of writing something that people pay attention to, um, and just enough to sort of make a blip on the radar. And then these people who are showrunners who look are looking to staff up will look at stuff that's out there. And if someone says, "Oh, I'm writing, a, I have a show that's sort of in the vein of Breaking Bad." And this this person wrote this really bizarre spec script that's never going to be a movie. It's too out there. But, God, there's some great ideas in here. This might be someone you want to meet with to put on the staff of breaking, your Breaking Bad-style show. Hmm. And that's sort of how things work. Um, the one thing I'll say, and people hate to hear this, uh, and hopefully it's going to be less and less um, as time goes on, but oftentimes people will say, well, I live in Kansas and, you know, I'm working on this and, uh, it's hard here in Kansas getting attention. And the <laughs> truth is, like, yeah, it is. So like, my, my other advice is if it's at all possible, try to find a way to live in L.A. at least for a brief period of time while you're trying to get your feet wet. It's, it's, I, I lived there for 11 years before I moved back east, and um, it's like saying I want to work in politics, but I don't want to live in D.C. Well, you've made your life a lot harder, you know. Doesn't right. mean it can't be done, but it, it's going to make it, it makes life much easier if you're actually in LA, where the vast majority of the buying and the selling and the, and the writing is getting done. Um, at least, you know, again, 
if you have a family and lots of other reasons why you can't move there, you know, by all means don't. But if there's any chance that you can spend some time there, I always encourage at least young people I talk to to not be snooty about L.A. and not think that they're above it, um, but in fact try to try to find a way to go out there. And, um, and the last yeah. thing I'll say is a long-winded answer, but the last thing I'll say about how to break in is sometimes just getting a job in the business it doesn't need to be on the writing end. In fact, you'll almost have an impossible time trying to find a job on the writing end. But getting a job in a mailroom, which is, I know what I did, um, or as a production assistant, or just being around the film industry is a way of meeting other people and networking. And, and so-and-so says, oh, I have a friend who's trying to direct something. They have a million dollars scraped together. They just need a movie that can be made for a million dollars. And you say, oh, I have the script. And, and then you'll write it. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, there's, there's, it's, that's a very long answer, but that's yeah. that's my advice I usually give to young people. Yeah, it's good. And the thing is, like, without being trite, so much of um, well, I'm I'm guessing it's the same in, in film, but so much is just who you know, and it's getting to know people, like what you said at the end, networking, and I mean, um, getting to know. Uh, getting to know people who are producers or writers or directors or whatever, and then they trust you and they come to you. And, I mean, it does – people are like, oh, that sounds trite, you know, it's who you know. But but um, I think establishing relationships is huge, and don't look at it as using people or using them as stepping stones or leveraging them, but, uh, you know, building relationships and then, you know, you're yeah, on It's so hard because a lot of the thing that, uh, you know, I, I, this, this, I fall in this category – much more so than probably the average writer, but a lot of writers just aren't social creatures. You know, yeah, in fact, yeah. the reason they became writers is they like to sit by themselves and write. Um, so in some ways that task is antithetical to the thing that you're good at, you know? Um, so it is hard. And I know I, I don't like that feeling of trying to use somebody or feeling like I'm being used and making these relationships feel transactional in any way. But um, again, if there's a way to put yourself in a place where it is happening naturally and you're simply forging a friendship, then it's not really usury. Then it's actually more about, hey, we're all trying to figure out how to get into this thing. Yeah. What, what can we do together to get us there? And, um, you know, I have friends now. I, again, I started screenwriting, I think, about 21 years ago. So I have friends now who are very higher ups in studios who were fellow mailroom schlubs like me who just were trying to figure it out. And we all stay in contact with each other, and everybody sort of slowly moves up. Um, again, that's why I say it's a little easier in L.A. because the the bar you go to at night is going to be peopled by, you know, fellow aspiring filmmakers. And, and, uh, and that makes it easier to bump into people. And just by that brownie motion of being in the same city, you're going to wind up making contacts without having to have it be that creepy thing of, oh, can you read my script, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, now, what uh, I'm wondering, even at this point in your career, are there specific stories that you've had just a huge challenge writing? I know, you know, for me, some novels, you know, kind of come together pretty well, and some I just have to beat my head against the wall until the story falls out. And and um, are there any of your stories that you would say, man, this was a, just a huge challenge as I was putting this together? Yeah, I mean, I think that as I've gotten older, I've learned how to steer clear of ones that I ultimately know I'm not going to be um, that successful at cracking. Yeah. But certainly when I started out, 
I mean, my first produced film was a film called Godsend, uh, which was really a pretty poorly executed film at the end of the day, and there's lots of blame that can be cast around, but I would take the, the, the large share of it, where um, there were things in that script that were half-baked and that I, I really was probably ill-equipped to write. Uh, certainly I was very young when I was writing it and just thought I knew more than I did and thought I was better at it than I was and um, and did struggle a lot. It was one of those also where I, I, I knew in the back of my head there was a lot of goofy elements that were going to need to be explained and sewn up, and I, I thought, we will, we'll just figure it out when we get there. And yeah. So, you know, again, like, it's an expensive lesson to learn, um, and I was very fortunate in that I quickly moved on to other things and didn't, you know, didn't get sucked into too much blaming myself or questioning my abilities. I just kind of kept going and, and hopefully improved. But, uh, in fact, oftentimes I'm sent a lot of things to rewrite um, from other people's work, whether it's something that someone is no longer available to do the writing on or, or, or for whatever reason the producers and the writer have sort of parted ways and it's just not working out. And when I look at it, because I, I have more experience, a lot of times people are keen to hire me because they think, oh, he's worked on these other things. I'd like my movie to feel like Live Free or Die Hard. We should hire that sure. guy. But um, the only, really, like, I, I'll, I'll turn down work. The most consistent reason will be um, I just know I can't do a good job on this, you know. Yeah. And um, I'm saving you money and I'm saving me, Agita, from sitting there and beating my head against a wall when I know that I'm not really the right person to do this work for you. I can see why you thought I might be, but what you don't know is X, Y, and Z, you know. Yeah. And so um, I try to steer clear of that. But, of course, with everything, you know, here's the thing, right? I'm sure you have this all the time. You'll be done with your day's work, and you're sure you have crushed it. Like, this is going to be the scene that they reprint on my obituary. And then the next morning you wake up, and you're like, this is the worst. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. How do you know that about me? (laughs) That's that's the daily work, right? That's what you do all day. And and I actually think it's, it's getting your skin thick enough to withstand that every single day. There's really not a day that goes by where I don't have that sensation of thinking something was great and it's terrible and just starting again. And um, so that to me is the daily struggle. I, I'd say if that struggle starts to become overwhelming, it's usually when I'm, I'm in a project that I need to pull the ripcord and, and find a way yeah. out of. Yeah. Now, a lot of the movies that um, you've worked on, and, and even ones that you've mentioned here in the interview, the Apes movies and also Live Free or Die Hard and even Total Recall, was it was using some other source material or at least storylines that you had to re-envision. Um, what are, are there any keys to doing that, to taking, you know, what other people have said and I'm saying, I'm taking this to the next level. I'm going to, I'm going to write this story with some of this source material, but we're going to move, we're going to move it up to. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the most, you know, concise answer I could give to that is I just tried to write the version that if I was deciding what I want to watch that night, I would be most excited to see. And so, I mean, Total Recall is a bit of an anomaly because I really just rewrote that for the, the director of Total Recall is actually the director of Live Free or Die Hard, and he'd asked me to come in and, and work on the script with him. But it wasn't one where I was, I, I, I wouldn't want to take 
uh, credit for conceiving sure. of the way that was executed. But something like Live for Your Die Hard, which was just starting with a title, basically, and sort of a, a vague bad guy plot that the studio had, had lifted from another film they had in development and said, well, we think this might be a good agenda for a bad guy for a diehard film. Um, then I sort of have to ask myself, well, what would I be most excited to see in a, in a fourth diehard film? And in that case, it was really about getting a little bit meta and thinking, well, does the world really need a fourth diehard film? Does, where does this character, <laughs> yeah, like, really, like, where does this character fit into today's landscape? And then leaning into that and saying, well, that's the idea here. It's going to be an analog guy in a digital world. And how is his um, obsolescence going to, you know, or, or possible obsolescence going to be a part of the movie itself? And this feeling that the world doesn't need someone like him anymore and sort of embrace that. And so it became an interesting take on a diehard film, at least the way I was able to sit down every day and get excited about it. And something like Planet of the Apes or, or even um, The Wolverine or... It's really yeah, like yeah. I'm very lucky in that someone has done a massive amount of heavy lifting and creating a character or or world, um, and then my job is really to like, you know, do justice to that to that world, and and, and then really like what they're hiring me for and what I'm I'm accepting money for is like I feel like I have a certain voice. It's not a you know it's not the most beautiful voice in the world, but I have a voice that I can tell these stories with, and I have ideas that percolate that are maybe different from other people's ideas and so I just try to stay as true to the things that I feel like I would be excited about and then hope that there's something universal in that that other people are getting excited about when they watch them and um, sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm wrong Um, and again luckily it's a collaborative medium and so there's other people I'm working with who say, oh, my God, I love that idea, or, oh, my God, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> and then, we, you know, together we try to arrive on the things that we're, we're both lining up. And if we're both lining up, that's why the new film, uh, the new plenty of film has been a double pleasure because I wrote it from the ground up with Matt. When we're both lining up and we're both getting excited is when we're fairly confident that a lot of people are going to respond to this. And, you know, the most exciting thing is when you – are, are going so far afield of what someone thinks that that genre or that, that franchise or that character uh, would ever do, and yet it still feels true, that's when you're really, like, excited um, because you've taken, you know, the, the property, it's a horrible word, but the property so far out of its comfort zone, uh, and yet it still feels like it's part of it. Um, that's the thing that, you know, when we sit down to do these, we're not looking to, you know, simply cash a check off of someone else's, you know, original work. It's really like we're picking up the baton and now we're going to run it and see what we can do with it. Sure. And, you know, try to do service to what came before. Yeah, I like what you said, too, about just knowing your, kind of knowing yourself. What are your strengths? What, you know, um, what aspects of, of story can you bring to it? It's knowing story, knowing yourself. Knowing your, you know, what um, audience or kind of audiences might be looking for, and being true to those characters. I, I hear you saying that over and over. Really, this idea of just being true to story, true to characters, and and uh, listening to them, and letting letting the story kind of grow around that organic process. Yeah, I think the longer you do it, the longer you realize that's probably the only true tool that you alone possess in your arsenal that really is nothing that anyone else has and so it's like it's 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 kind of pushing past things that you realize are cliches or tropes or that you know you sort of borrowed from another film and 
um, just trying to find a way to keep pushing past that to something that feels real and true to you, even in these unreal settings, you know. Um, early on, you mentioned that the dialogue and action are really the two tools that you use. And as a novelist, we kind of use internal dialogue or monologue, whatever you want to call it, more. Sure. And unless you do a voiceover, that doesn't really happen in film. But what, what I'm curious about, um, dialogue makes complete sense to me. And when I think about action sequences, a lot of your movies have these incredible action sequences. And, uh, and when I watch them, I think, how much of this actually was in the script and how much of it grew out of the director, the producer, the actor, the fight coordinator, whoever it might be in that scene. Um, how, how do you write those action sequences? Well, again, it's, it's why I would describe a screenplay as a blueprint. So yeah. my job is to really come up with the concept for the action set piece and maybe a couple of beats in there that you have a sense will survive the process yeah. because they're strong enough to sort of support the big idea. But then it's probably the part, at least for the genre that I'm working in, um, that's the most collaborative because uh, very oftentimes it is the stunt coordinator who's coming up with something that maybe is a little micro but winds up being the thing that everybody remembers from the, from the set piece. Yeah. Um, so really what you're doing is really the screenwriter's job is to make sure that that action is springing from story and from character. And then everybody else's job is to put all the bells and whistles on it and make it as visceral and as exciting as possible. Um, and oftentimes when I'm shooting something down or at least arguing against something, um, it's because that even though it's a great, fun idea, it's a little antithetical to what the characters in the story would be about at that moment. So it's it's the most collaborative. Uh, yeah. But again, it's funny, you know, you'll I'll read some screenplays that, will say, and then a shootout happens, and that's it, right? And then they're assuming that whoever makes the film is going to fill in all the blanks there. That, to me, is a little bit undercooking your your meal. Um, but on the flip side, I've also read screenplays that will devote 10 pages to that same shootout, and that's an equal waste of time because you're not a stunt coordinator and you're not yeah. um, a weapons expert and you're not a director, right? If you're the director, that's a different story, but if you're not the director... Um, you don't need to select every shot and every cut that's happening in that shootout. Your job is to come up with the story of the shootout. What is the shootout about? How do the characters ideally evolve over the course of that shootout? Um, how can we advance the narrative so that by the time the shootout's done, the story's in a different place than when it started? That's your job. And then if you have a cool idea or two that would make the shootout fun, great. But if you don't, that's okay, too. There's going to be a lot of people you're working with. It's, again, one of the big advantages of being a screenwriter as opposed to a novelist where you're doing all that work. Um, and it's oftentimes where you read a scene in a novel and, you know, again, like something like Jurassic Park, for example, which is, a you know, you could credit a lot to Michael Crichton, but, you know, you also have to give a lot of credit to Steven Spielberg and the people who designed the dinosaurs in the film and all these other things that are really probably at least equal to what people recall from the story itself. is just the visceral thing of a yeah. dinosaur smashing into your windshield. Um, so, again, there's only so much you're going to get done in a screenplay, but your job is to, to lay, the, you know, lay the pipe for the story and the character. 
Now, a lot of people at least tell novelists you should write in the genre that you uh, read. Um, and so if you write suspense, then they assume that you're a big fan of suspense. And I found it interesting earlier when you mentioned some of those some of those um, dark horror um, movies, which I've seen, and I liked all of those. I thought they were all really interesting. Um, and uh, do, uh, how does that fit in? Because I personally don't read that much suspense. I like to read stuff around the suspense. Maybe yeah, that's exactly how I am with yeah. films. And yeah. even my reading is the same way. I don't really read... I tend not to read things that I could ever actually adapt myself into a film unless someone sends it to me and says you should read yeah. this. Um, I tend to read things that are quieter, uh, a little more introspective. And um, But, yeah, I, I feel like it's, in a way, it's it, if you're – I'm sure there are people who only, whose only appetites are for the same genre that they work in. But for the most part, look, I can, I can truly appreciate when someone has written or made a really great – uh, franchise film, right? Like I see uh, something like The Dark Knight, and I'm like, wow, I, I know how hard it would be to make that successful, and I'm in awe of the people who made that film. Um, but for the most part, I am more excited by watching either a great comedy or a great drama or um, or like a great small horror film where I don't have that part of me that's trying to deconstruct what would I do, um, although that always happens, um, but more <laughs> just try to really just enjoy it. And I guess that's where my taste lie. Again, I think if I was starting out now, there's so many great, like when I started out, the, the indie films that were sort of popping, um, the ones that sort of grabbed me the most were these neo-noir films, like what John Dahl did with Last Seduction and Red Rock West. And I was trying to write in that way, because I think that's what was grabbing me. And that quickly evolved into doing other kind of writing. I think now I probably would try to, like a, you know, like a movie like Get Out, um, it's so much more exciting to me than most movies that I see, even though I know in a million years I couldn't have written Get Out. Um, but I don't know why. Your tastes evolve over time, and, yeah, I, I tend to never really look for stuff that resembles the things that I'm actually writing. But I'll, I'll say this, and I'm sure you do this as well. I also try to be really aware of the things that are in the zone that I'm writing sure. so that I don't copy them. Um, and also so I know what my competition is and what people are responding to or not responding to in those. Now, I really loved Dawn, and I'm looking forward to War for the Planet of the Apes. And without giving us any plot spoilers, can you give us any kind of hints or clues of what to look for in this installment? Well, as I said before, this installment really is about the war within Caesar himself and then also the war that was sort of hinted at being on the horizon at the end of Dawn. And um, it's set two years after Dawn, and... Um, at the end of dawn, it's it's stated that more humans are coming from uh, from the north and uh, coming uh, at the you know Gary Oldman's character puts out a call right before the end of the film requesting help and now people are on their way and so this is the aftermath and the, this other group of uh, of soldiers has arrived and this battle has been waged for like two years since the last film. And so it already begins in a place where war has really taken its toll on Caesar and on his immediate family and friends and um, in the ape community, and it's about how are we ever going to get past this. And um, and it starts to question just how ruthless you have to be um, in order to protect your species or your, the people mm. you love. And um, And that's happening on both sides, on the human side and on Caesar's side, and then 
basically the tolls of war push Caesar to a point where he starts to focus in on Woody Harrelson's character in particular and starts to believe that there's almost nothing uh, he wouldn't do to to see that Woody Harrelson's character is eliminated and by extension that would somehow end this. And so, um, again, that's being a little bit coy because I'm trying not to give things no, away. And I can't fine. remember how much is yeah. given away in the trailer. But I will say we have new characters that were starting to, you know, that, that emerged around this idea. Um, two new characters in particular that we're really fond of. And, um, and we try to, we really tried to build out the scope of this film beyond Don. Like it's, it's, I hate using this word cause it's a bit cliche, but it's a, it's kind of an epic movie. It's much larger in scale and scope, not only in terms of spectacle, but in terms of like the emotional palette of the movie. And, um, again, how many risks we can take in terms of storytelling, um, so that it is really a, a big, epic, biblical, Western war drama um, <laughs> that happens to have apes in it. Uh, and it's funny, like, they don't, they, you know, it they, they seems like they, they market the films in such a way that they want you to make sure you see there's action and uh, things blowing up and people, apes shooting guns and all this stuff that people, uh, it's easy to sort of sell. Um, the harder thing to sell in the trailer, but Knockwood is what people will respond to, is really just the epic scope of, of the storytelling in this and really... Um, trying to elevate this story into something approaching myth that is hopefully going to go away towards explaining why the planet of the apes itself is is this um, this larger than life mythological idea in the culture. You know, um, that's a very hoity yeah, toity way of putting it. Um, so yeah, and I like I like you know how you started off too talking about the war inside of him, and I think. Um, to create something that's really resonant in the long term is, you know, to have that character-driven, some people might say character-driven aspect of it or whatever you want to call it, but where we identify with the struggles of those characters are like, man, I could see why I'd be angry or I could see why I would be ruthless. And that's that's where the stories that we really connect with tend to. Tend I to think it's even the reason a movie like this is not a movie that informed our movie, but like a movie is as relatively simple as Taken, which is complicated in many ways, but that there's something just primal about the setup, right? That like yeah. someone takes your daughter that really is speaks to what we really worry about at night when we go to bed. And um, I think where some big movies tend to miss the mark is that what they're about and what the characters are, are agonizing about is fundamentally unrelatable or even worse, slightly unbelievable and so then we say, okay, well, let me just see how, how well they can make things blow up, and that'll be where I, that's where my money's been spent. But at least with these films, we really try to make them about, you know, the, the big hurdle that we're always trying to leap over, and that it's thrilling when you feel like you've, you've leaped the hurdle, is that these are, you know, computer-generated apes, and that if you're somehow really relating and empathizing with them, um, not unlike the way you do with Gollum and Lord of the Rings, you know, that there's, <laughs> there's something real. I mean, you can argue that that's the most human character in those films, you know, and um, and that to me is super exciting, you know. 
Well, this has been a great conversation, Mark. I really, really appreciate you your time and your insights and um, just your passion, too, for great for great storytelling. And I want to encourage any listeners who might want to catch you at a conference or maybe one of your classes that you sometimes teach. Is there a place online where we can follow you or or catch up with where you're where you're at or what you're doing? Um, I don't tend to have a big online footprint. I um, I have a Twitter account. Uh, it's just Mark Bombeck, I think, if you type that in. But I, honestly, it tends to be mostly me retweeting angry things about Donald Trump. So it's, it's not really, I don't think you get much out of it on the writing. And every now and then, though, uh, someone will ask me a question, and I'll respond to it. And certainly if people hit me up with a question on there, I'm always happy to answer it. And uh, But I tend to be pretty averse to self-promotion, so there's not too much going on online about me. Um, no, just well, I, yeah, say, no, that, check out, that's check out fine. a movie or two and you know, see if it's for you. Yeah, no, and we want everyone to go out and buy your tickets now for war. The Planet of the Apes, and uh, okay. for more information about my novel writing, uh, intensive retreats, and the writing that I do, you can go to my website, stephenjames.net, and also my Twitter is Read Stephen James. Uh, for more guests and other broadcasts, please click to thestoryblender.com, and uh, we've revamped the site so it's much easier to use for mobile devices these days. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.